0: I, uh, I've been losing a lot of things lately. And when I say I've been losing them, I really mean that my, my four-year-old son, Rowan, has been losing a lot of my things lately. And if any of you have small kids, you know just how frequent this happens. And for whatever reason, the most exciting place in the whole house is, is my office with my stuff and my drawers and my things just right where I need them to be. Right, And there's this, this funny kind of dynamic at play when it comes to Rowan losing my stuff. I know that almost daily, he's, he's making his way into my office and taking things that he should not be taking. And on most days, it's stuff that doesn't really matter, right, it's like a pencil, or some old sticky note that I don't need anymore, or a a flash drive. Like There are people in the room today who don't know what a flash drive is. That's just how meaningless flash drives are. And when that kind of thing happens, when the pencil goes missing or the sticky note or the flash drive, there's no urgency in me to start looking. There's not a lot of meaning attached to those things. It's not important for me to locate where those things have ran off to. But sometimes he takes something that does mean something. He takes something that's important, whether I'm a pen person, like I like pens and have like some nice pens. Sometimes he walks off with one of those things and it's like, no, 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 we we need to find that thing and bring that back to where, where it belongs. And of course, because you're a human being, at some point you have set something down and forgotten where you put it. And so hopefully it's not like an all too familiar feeling, but you know that feeling that comes over you when you've lost something that matters, when you've lost something that's meaningful to you, something that's important. Maybe your your palms start to get a little sweaty, your heart starts to race just a little bit. Your mind is certainly racing, trying to remember where was the last place I put it, what was happening right before I lost that thing, trying to reassemble some kind of memory so that you can relocate that thing that's been lost. For me, this oftentimes looks like grabbing Rowan and shaking him and saying, where'd you put my pen? (laughs) What we see in these parables, in the work that Jesus is preoccupied with, is that the way Jesus' mission is accomplished in the world is not by winning. It's somehow accomplished by losing. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus, the arc of what's happening, Jesus, he he calls the 12 disciples to himself, and he says to them that if anyone wants to be first, he must be last, And then he takes a child and puts her in in the midst of them, and he tells them that unless they turn and become like this child, they will never enter the kingdom at all. And then he adds that whoever humbles himself like this child is in fact the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And finally, Jesus tells them that whoever receives one such child in his name, doesn't just receive him, but receives the Father, and that he who is the least among you is the one who is great. Robert Capon, in his book, Parables, Parables of Grace, he says that these are the categories that matter to Jesus. These are the categories of people that are important to God. It's the last The least, the lost, the little, and the dead. He couldn't come up with an L word for dead. The last, the least, the lost, the little, and the dead. And so Jesus, in this parable today, he sits down with sinners and with tax collectors, the losers, the people who have been told their whole lives that they exist outside of the love and the mercy and the grace of God. And it's the winners, right? It's, it's the Pharisees, the people who are so sure that they have been found, that they are doing everything right. They're the ones who are there and what does the text say they're doing? They're grumbling. They're grumbling. And of course, we could talk all afternoon about why they're grumbling and why that matters, but what's more important to me is that they're there. They're still present. There's still something about this person of Jesus that they're drawn to. They might be grumbling and they might be complaining that Jesus isn't, he's going around doing all of the right things to the, right, to the wrong people and doing the right things at the wrong time, that he just doesn't really seem to get it, but they're still fascinated with this person of Jesus. They're still drawn to him, and only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can have people together who all at one moment are drawn to him because this new thing that he's doing, because there seems to be a better word that he's speaking, and also have the people who are grumbling and complaining that there's just something a little off. Only Jesus can bring those kinds of people together in one moment. And while he has all their attention, while he has them all together, he tells them this story of the lost sheep and the lost coin. And he starts in both of these short stories, these short parables, he starts in both of them by asking this question, this this hypothetical question. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, doesn't leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one who is lost until he finds it? He asks it as if it's a, a kind of matter of course. Like, obviously this is what you would do. But we should pause right there. (laughs) Because while it may or may not be true that shepherds in Jesus' day had that kind of devotion to individual members of the flock, willing to leave the 99 and go searching for the one, we can't hear this parable as a helpful hint for running successful sheep herding businesses. What happens when you leave the 99 and go searching for the one. In spite of what Jesus is suggesting, we shouldn't assume this was normal practice for them. Leaving your entire flock to go and find the one who went astray is not sound shepherding advice. Because the most likely result of going off in pursuit of one lost sheep will only be what? 99 more lost sheep. Jesus asked this question as if to say, of course, that's what you would do. When what he really means is, of course, that's what the father has done and is doing and will always do for the ones who are lost. This is what God will do for you. This is what God has done for you. And this is what God will continue to do for you into your future Of course, Jesus is is emphasizing the pursuit of the Father, but he's also implying something bizarre. And that bizarre thing that he's implying is this, this saving paradox of lostness. This saving paradox of lostness that somehow us being saved requires us being lost. Us receiving grace means us inevitably having to have wandered. And somehow the only way that God's saving work in our lives is accomplished is because we're lost. Again, Jesus is telling them, you discount the last and the least and the lost and the little and the dead, but this is how the kingdom works, that the last become first, that the least become the greatest, that the lost become found and the little are glorified and the dead are raised to life. All of that is good news, but it requires us to start at a place of being last and lost and little and least and dead. The good news for us is that lostness is not a problem for God. Jesus suggests that even if all 100 sheep should get lost, it won't be a problem for this bizarrely good shepherd because he is first and foremost not in the shepherding business, he's in the business of finding lost things. Jesus is saying to the grumblers, give him a world with a hundred out of a hundred of every lost souls. Give him a whole world full of the last and the least and the lost and the little, and that will do just fine for God. Lostness is exactly God's cup of tea. We've often heard this parable, and we assume that, that the 99 are, are those who have already been found, that the 99 are those who need no repentance. And so we actually create a category like there are people in the world who exist as the 99. But the reality is the 99 have never existed. <laughs> the 99 is not a, a real category of people. The 99 is is no one, because who has ever been found and been saved and stayed? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. This is what wells up in us. This is the best that we can bring to the table before God is not our commitment to staying put. The best that we can bring before God is we're going to wander, we're going to get lost in all of this and our hope, our only hope is that God comes looking for us. That is our hope, not that we can stay put in our goodness and in our faithfulness, our hope is that God comes looking if we think we have it in us to bring ourselves back to the fold, if we think we have it in us to find our way back to God, it stops being grace. And what Jesus is telling them, saints and sinners alike, is that God is always in the business of looking for what is lost, searching for those who wander. And it turns out that searching and looking and finding This is not a burden for God. This is not, there's no grief in God's searching us out. There's only joy. There's only joy in God going and seeking and looking and finding. It is God, the good shepherd's sheer joy that leads him out into the wilderness, that leads him out to searching and to seeking. And it's with sheer joy that he returns what is lost. Jesus is careful here to point point out, to paint this really really vivid picture of what this joy looks like for God. That the shepherd puts the sheep on his shoulders who says, you know what? It's not even gonna be on you to make your way back. I'm going to put you on my shoulders and bring you back. And even while I'm still on my journey, coming back to my house, I'm gonna begin even then calling out to my friends and calling out to my neighbors, look what I've found. Look what I've brought home. Back to where it belongs. Come, rejoice with me. I have found what was lost. This brings us quickly to to the parable of the lost coin. And this parable, it only shows up in, in Luke's gospel. And it starts with this same hypothetical question as the lost sheep It says, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. And like the shepherd, she recklessly drops everything in search of the one lost coin. This would have been an equivalent to a day's wages and something particularly precious in a village economy where cash is, is kind of a rare thing. And when she finds it, Jesus says, She calls her friends and she calls her neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found the lost coin. And in the same way, Jesus turns this to the way that the kingdom works, the way that heaven responds to lostness and foundness. He says there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now usually, when we talk about repentance in the church, it's described to us as a kind, of, a kind of change of mind or a kind of change of heart for us, a change of opinion about what we've done or about what we've, we've left undone. Dostoevsky famous novelist, he writes in Crime and Punishment, his definition of what he calls burning repentance. This is an idea that that we've all taken about what repentance actually looks like. He says, it's that thing which breaks the heart and drives sleep away, and it torments one into dreaming of the noose or the water deeps. Guilt, torment, sleeplessness, judgment, these are usually the words that we associate with repentance, with confession. But when we look at Luke's gospel and we look at these stories, these definitions don't actually get us very far. Because here, neither the lost coin nor the lost sheep was actually capable of any repentance the shepherd doesn't hear the sheep calling out in their lostness to come and find them. The coin doesn't ask to be looked for, asked to be found. The entire, the, the whole catalyst, the thing that starts in the, the, she, the, the shepherds and the and the woman's searching, the entire catalyst for this operation is the shepherd's determination to find what was lost. And the woman's commitment to recovering that thing that was valuable to her. Again, Capon says, Neither the lost sheep nor the lost coin does a blessed thing except hang around in its lostness. Just hangs around in its lostness. I have a dog. His name is Grover. And he's the worst. And he's also an incredible escape artist. We have time and time and time again had to tie up our fence and put locks on gates, and we have bungee cords that hold doors closed in our house because wherever you put him, he can get out of it. And it's really frustrating especially when you have smaller people living in your house who actually love this animal. And I can't count at this point the number of times that we'll be just looking out our back window and just see Grover leave. (laughs) And I think to myself, he has everything that he needs right here. We feed him, we give him water, We let him on the couch sometimes. My children pet him and touch him and and enjoy him. And there he goes. And of course, it's not our children who are going to rush out the door and run down the street and go searching for this dumb dog. I'm the one who has to go outside and either get in the car or run down the street and go get this dog who's so determined on running away from home and bring him back. There's nothing in Grover where he's barking on the other side of our neighborhood where he's desiring to come home. We drag him home and after we get him home, we say, what do you want? Everything that you need is here. There's nothing in Grover telling us he wants to come back. There's no repentance in that beast. And Jesus says it's the same with all of you. It's the same with us, with us human beings, that the reality for us is as a lost sheep, practically, a lost sheep is a dead sheep. A lost coin is a dead asset. And these parables of of lostness, they are far from being calls to repentance. They are specifically not stories designed to convince us that if we will wind ourselves up into some acceptable level of moral or spiritual improvement, then God will forgive us. Then God will come and find us. Instead, they are announcements that it is precisely our lostness that commends us to God. They are announcements that God is determined to move toward us long before we move toward God. That even our desire to love God, our desire to move toward God is born by God's activity in our lives already. The only tickets that we need to this meal is lostness and death. In all of these parables, Jesus says it is the lost who get to come to the party. Remember the story of the prodigal son. It's the son who wanders and leaves and is lost that gets brought in to the party. And it's the son who has stayed It's the son who thought he was never lost who ends up outside the feast at the end of the story. What's more, these parables show us that anything except the will of God is shown to be necessary to the new life that Jesus offers. There's nothing else except the will of God that is necessary for us to move into the joy of the new life that were offered in Jesus. Capone says that neither the lostness nor the deadness nor the repentance is in itself redemptive. God alone gives life and he gives it freely and fully on no conditions whatsoever. These stories, he says, are parables of grace and grace only. If that seems too good to be true, or maybe you're thinking it feels too unfair, the good news is that that's grace. Good news is that grace sounds too good to be true. And for some of us, grace feels too unfair. Remember Paul's words in Romans that God proved his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Now, what we shouldn't hear this morning is that repentance isn't necessary. But we should begin to see confession and repentance in a different way kind of light confession repentance turns out to be something other than we thought it's not the admission of a mistake which thank god we've we finally recognized and started correcting that's not repentance repentance isn't just the admission that we've done wrong it's the admission that we are dead in our sins That we have no power of ourselves to save ourselves or to convince anyone else that we are worth saving. Confession and repentance is the recognition that our whole life is finally and forever out of our hands. And if we ever live again, if we're ever brought back to life, if our lives are to be healed at all, it will be entirely the gift of a gracious other. The gift and the grace of God is the only thing that can shock us back to life. In the same way, forgiveness, absolution also begin to to be seen in a different kind of light. Forgiveness is not God pardoning our sins as if to say, I understand your weakness and I make allowance for your errors. That's that's not God's response to us as we are forgiven. God's pardon, God's forgiveness is disposing of and finishing with the whole of our dead life and raising us up to new life in Christ. He doesn't so much deal with our sins so much as he drops them down the black hole of Jesus' death. God forgives our sins in the darkness of the tomb. He remembers our debts and our sins and our iniquities no more. These parables today teach us that God doesn't find us in the garden of improvement. That's not the place where God finds us, in the middle of us already bettering our lives and improving our own condition. God finds us, these parables tell us, in the desert of death. And it is precisely from death that we're brought back home. And these parables, if they are about anything, they are about coming home. They speak to us about the nature of lostness and perhaps also about the gift, the strange gift of experiencing lostness if we are really to experience coming home. And no matter how weary or bitter or confused as we may be, God is faithful to find us in our weariness and in our confusion and in our bitterness. And God is committed to that work of bringing us home. God lets us wander, oftentimes so that we'll know what it means for us to come home, to find our home in him. Jesus is teaching us something about the nature of God who seeks and searches, not begrudgingly, not in grief, not under some kind of burden, but joyfully seeking, going out in sheer love and returning in sheer joy with what God has found. These parables, they also they give us a hint about how all of this might end. And if grace feels a little too scandalous today, buckle up. These stories offer us a hope to believe that our stories don't end at the grave. Even hell is no obstacle because this is the God who in Christ comes not only into the far country in search of us, not only turns over all the furniture and doesn't stop looking until what has been lost has been found, this is the God in Christ who also descends into the very depths of hell in order to carry us home. We say it week after week after week that we believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. This is the God of relentless love. This is the hound of heaven, and this is the God not death or cancer or drunk drivers or any human decision that will decide how history ends. God decides. This is what it means to call God, as we do week after week after week, the judge of the living and the dead. Like the good shepherd who searches for the lost and rescues them from all the places where they've been scattered, Jesus' work isn't done until all come home. This means that he keeps seeking the lost, even after the grave. He continues to descend into the dead, and we believe that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. He seeks those who refused his love, He seeks those who have abandoned his love. He seeks those who have never known his love. He seeks those for whom life ended prematurely because it's only the lost who are found. We have all refused his love. We have all abandoned his love. This is the saving paradox of lostness. In Christ, there's no such thing as empty time or dead time. All time is filled with Christ's lordship over the living and the dead and filled with the liveliness of the spirit who is the giver of life. All that has been, all that will be has been gathered up into God's own life. Julian of Norwich bravely suggested that none of what happens in time and none of the toil and suffering that we have to endure in this world will be wasted. It will all be turned to God's worship and our endless joy. All shall be well. Not even the grave is an obstacle for this Easter God. And if it's true for Jesus, our faith and our hope is that it's true for us. Death, of course, is familiar territory to God. And here in these parables, we're given a picture of the character of such a God. We're given a glimpse of how this might all end. How your life ends and how my life ends and how the lives of those who we love and of those who have made life hell for us will end with celebration with a Eucharistic feast of rejoicing, with the healing of traumatic memories, with the extravagant joy with which God welcomes the found and he eats with them, with all of us being brought home. All will be well. All will be well. All will be well. Amen.